You are listening to the Believe in Yourself podcast. A podcast that inspires people to believe in themselves to unlock their own potential. My name is Luke Reese, and I'm a multi-award winning motivational speaker and UK young leader. And I'm sitting down with leaders to discover their journeys and the lessons they have learned to make the unachievable achievable. Welcome to the Believe in Yourself podcast. Welcome back to the Believe in Yourself podcast. Today's guest is a passionate mental health advocate and TED speaker and a published author of Breaking Into My Life. After years playing the child caregiver, this embarked on her own healing self-discovery journey. She has spent years working to eradicate the mental health stigma and has emerged from her own challenging life events with a strong desire to positively impact the mental health landscape within the first responder community, the workplace and within local communities. Please welcome to the Believe in Yourself podcast, Michelle Dickinson. Luke, thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me all the way in New Jersey as well. Yes, all the way in Wales. I'm talking to someone all the way in Wales from all the way in New Jersey. <laughs> the power, the power of social media, and the power of the internet these days. We've managed to, to get to get you on. But um, thank you, thank you for joining me today. How are you uh, keeping during these times? I'm okay. Thanks for asking. I think that is such a basic question, but one we need to be asking more of because we've never had to deal with a pandemic. So thanks for asking. I'm doing okay. Today is a good day. Awesome. I'm well, pleased to hear and hopefully that uh, you, you'll enjoy the next hour or so when we get to chat a little bit deeper with this episode. Um, but really I want to start off and I always love to find out about people's journeys because sometimes we can get so caught up with the amazing work that you're doing now but we don't necessarily understand your background or your experiences and the journey that you've been on to get there so I'd love to start off this episode by finding out a little bit more about yourself and your journey in in, in your early life. Sure sure so my story begins as a little girl growing up with my mother who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She had the, the typical signs and symptoms of bipolar disorder high manic highs, um, lots of energy, and then deep depressing lows. So as a child, you know, I just kind of held on for the ride. I would refer to it as the roller coaster because some days she was up and some days she was down. Um, You know, that experience would shape me and I, you know, didn't ask to be a child caregiver of hers. It was just needed and it was my normal. And, you know, it um, it was a very challenging experience because you know, when you have a loved one that's suffering, this is for anyone who loves someone with a mental illness, it's really hard to watch their pain and not have any, any capacity to make it better. So, you know, that taught me extreme empathy and compassion, um, but also, uh, you know, deep, deep understanding for the life of someone with a mental illness. So, um, so yeah, so I grew up with her having that, um, that diagnosis. Eventually I would, um, you know, start a career working um, as a technician for IBM. Um, You know, I would put myself through school. And, uh, you know, it was was quite the experience. My mother, um, you know, was very manipulative. She was very emotionally, mentally, physically abusive. Um, She still had that control over me, even as a young young woman. Um, So, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite, quite the experience. Eventually, I would put myself through school, get a bachelor's degree, get a master's degree, and then 
uh, start a career in the pharmaceutical industry that um, I would enjoy for about 19 years. Um, it was like in the face of that, pulling myself up on my bootstraps and just going for it. Um, I would land on the TED stage in my last company, giving my, my talk about my experience with my mother because I was nominated by a colleague of mine. She thought my story was important. And that would really open a completely different pathway for me. I had no vision of becoming a mental health advocate whatsoever. Um, but when I told my story, it was received in such a positive way. And I thought I could do something with this that could make a difference, that could really remove stigma. So, so that is kind of what led me to write my memoir, Breaking Into My Life. What a story. And first of all, thank you for, for being so open and honest and, and sharing that with us. And I think, you know, like I've always said, when it comes down to mental health stigma, the more we have people talking about it and the more we normalize the conversation, the easier it's going to be for people to, to talk about, but also for us to have the conversation. Because um, it is just one-to-one -one and it's a conversation just like you, you ask your friends how they're doing and it can be as simple as that sometimes, can't it? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And that person that you're asking how you're doing might not have anyone at home asking them. So it can make a real difference. But I'd love to come back to as a, as a young person, because you talked about some of the, the childhood experiences that you had then going through, you know, putting yourself through school. You know, how did that affect your, your school life? Was you always, um, did you excel in school or was it, do you find school difficult or what, what was your experiences? So school for me was an escape from my home you know, my home life. So when I got into the classroom and was surrounded by my friends, I was temporarily like relieved of caring for my mother and feeling the heavy weight of the depression on my shoulders. So um, it was more of a social outlet for me. Um, I did not excel in school. I struggled to be honest with you. But I think it was a lot because I was preoccupied and worried about my mom at home and then worried about upsetting her. Um, you know, so it was hard. And I also had to keep the secret that my mother was mentally ill, right? Because kids are cruel. So I had to carry that um, secret with me until I would find a place in my teenage years with my youth group where I felt like, okay, this is a safe community. I can share my story with them and, and, and really get support, support I desperately needed. So, yeah. And you know, took there about school being escapism. Did you have any more escapisms, or was it really just school was the place where you could really try and just shut off and escape everything from the outside world? Oh, Luke, boys were an escape for me. <laughs> <laughs> I never had a problem finding a boyfriend, and I got a lot of attention. So for me, I wrote a whole chapter about this in my book about how. I was always seeking attention because my mom was like emotionally unavailable. My father was working. I needed to be fed in some way where I felt validated. So I really did sort of lose myself in um, boyfriend to boyfriend, uh, just trying to find that acceptance, you know, and that, that love that I was missing. So, yeah. Mm. No, I, I, see a, I see a lot of young people doing exactly the same. And I think one of the ones when, when I do a lot of work in, in schools, you often find it's the, it's the, those young people who crave attention, who want it are the ones that I kind of said perfectly there are, are starved by it at home. And sometimes a lot of the teachers who I work with, they'll turn on and say, oh no, they're just a, they're just a bad student or they're not a nice person. And when you, when you get to spend time with them and find out why that is, you, especially when you have the smaller conversations, you then realize, well, perhaps it's because they, they don't, they don't have the attention they don't have the love home so they they look for it in other forms and perhaps they haven't been taught how to love and how to behave properly rather than just assuming that they're just a, a bad student 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think I love that what you just shared. I think we all need to be more curious. We all need to have curiosity as to why people are the way they are. It's very easy to, you know, bucket people together and say they are a certain way without being curious, but we're all complex human beings. I mean, at the end of the day, we're complex, we're unique, and it takes someone like you to get curious about why someone is the way they are um, that can make all the difference, right? And accept them for who they are. So talk me, so obviously that, that was school. Then you went off to, was it college or university for, for your degree? Um, no, it's so funny. I actually, my father had a, a lovely career at IBM and he helped me get a temporary job at IBM. So I immediately, okay. right after high school, went to work for IBM as a temporary employee, eventually became a long-term employee. And then, um, and then I left to go toward the, the healthcare field. Um, so I never went back to college until I was several years in the pharmaceutical industry. And then I was working full time and going to school at night. Wow. How, how, was, how was that? Go, how was that kind of realizing that you had gone straight to employment and then going back into education years afterwards? How do you find that transition? I think I was much more curious older. I was not ready to go to college. So my mom and dad um, were very strict. I was an only child. I had cousins that lived with us for a while, but my mom did not like the idea of me going off to school. So the offer was go to the community college. And it was a big joke in my town. Go to community college. It's like, it's like high school level two, right? Everyone okay. who doesn't go to school is there, right? So I was not in a learning mentality at that age. So I, I like went for a month. I hated it. And I left. And that's when I got my job. So for me, going back to college as a few years into my career was really good for me because I was curious about and I was more interested in a specific field, right? So I went to school for a bachelor's of human service management. And I've been a lifelong volunteer uh, in the community. So that was something that I was very interested in. And because of that, I think that's why I did well. Okay. And, and how long was that? How long was that course? How long was that degree take you considering you was working full time? You know, I, it's like a blur. I think, I feel like I was in school for eight or nine years from my associates to my master's. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it was a long so, time and it was at night. So, yeah. So it was a long process. It wasn't something that you could just do overnight. It was something that you had to commit to for a long period of time. Yes, exactly. And, I, and you know, for me, with every um, step along the way, I, I was building momentum. So like I got my associates and I was proud of myself. Then I got my bachelor's and I was proud of myself. And I said, all right, so what, what stops me from getting a master's? Nothing. So let's go. So I just kept going because I was like enjoying the learning process, I guess. Awesome. So did, did you start your degree with the anticipation of doing your master's or is that something that came later on when you discover that self-belief that you could do it? Yeah, later on. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, coming from a woman who, when I started my pharmaceutical career, I was the underdog because I started at Merck and I couldn't really type and I wasn't proficient in the software and I was starting as a secretary. So I was really given an opportunity, like I was like a unicorn where I found uh, someone who wanted to give me a chance because they believed in my tenacity. So, um, so I think for me, you know, getting that opportunity, proving myself and realizing that I could do it was the momentum that I needed to go back to school and have the confidence that I could do this one step at a time. 
So um, I think I wanted it more and, um, you know, I was given a chance to prove myself, which was really, you know, we always have those people in our lives who gave us the shot, right? Like you gave me a shot and you didn't have to. So I have people like that, that I remember every step of the way. Yeah. No, I think everyone has those people, um, including myself. Mine was a guy called Mr. Howells. Uh, and you'll always remember that one person who, who believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself and who gave you that first step on the ladder and they opened the door for you. And we all have those people in our lives. But we've talked there a little bit about kind of um, your mother's bipolar and her mental health problems. What about yourself as a young person? Did, did you suffer with mental health problems as, as, a, as a consequence of, of that? You know, it's funny. I... Um... I never, so I'm adopted. My mother adopted okay. me. So I thought to myself, I am, I'm not going to struggle with a mental illness because I don't have my mother's genes, you know? But as I got older, I started to struggle with seasonal depression. I could never do it in Wales, I'll tell you right now. <laughs> seasonal depression, rain, I could never do it. I need sunshine. It really does affect me. So I struggle with that. Like the winters here in New Jersey are rough. They're gray and they're long and they're cold. Um, and I always, you know, sort of rectified that with a trip to the Caribbean in, in, the, in the winter. But then, um, you know, two years ago, I found myself dealing with a life event and I was diagnosed with depression for the first time. I never expected it. I thought if anyone's resilient, it's me. I witnessed my mom. I've navigated seasonal depression. You know, I'm, I'm going to be okay. But then like, I'm suddenly like, you know, down for the count, dealing with this deep depression because my marriage was coming to an end. And, and so it was a big struggle for me uh, to navigate that. But it also reminded me that nobody is immune to mental illness, right? I had no, um, you know, pre-existing beyond seasonal depression. And this life event just really took me down. So I think we all need to be reminded that life events can really um, impact us. And, you know, when you look at mental health being a continuum, of wellness and we're floating along that those life events can really um come along when we least expect it and impact our well-being talking about coping with kind of your, your seasonal depression you talked there about kind of a, a, a trip to the caribbean every year um, but also the, with the life events you talked about um, what are the coping mechanisms or, or ways that you learn your, in yourself that you could um you've been able to share that other people other people have been able to help themselves yeah so for me um, so when I was diagnosed with depression, it was right before, it was like in the spring of two years ago. Uh, I think it was about 46. It was the spring. And I remember asking my doctor, cause I, I knew, I, you know, because of this work I was doing, I didn't have any shame in going to a physician. So I went to a doctor. He was wonderful. I asked him for medication. I said, could you give me medication? This was really hard. And he said, no, he said, you actually need to feel your way through this and find ways to deal with it. So we talked about coping mechanisms and I actually threw myself in training for a triathlon. So I thought, what a better way to kind of get my mind off of what I'm dealing with and really focus on a goal. So I, my cousin sucked me into training for a triathlon and so I needed a, a schedule, right? So then I had this rigorous schedule where I was running, I was riding my bike, I was swimming. Um, and it really got me um, through it. It helped me with the endorphins. It helped me focus on feeling better, um, eating better, because when you're working out, you definitely don't want to put garbage in your mouth. So um, all of that helped me. It really did. So for me, running became a real big vice for me. For sure. And um, was that something that 
you know, you discovered triathlon the first attempt or was there things that you tried beforehand? Because like with me, my escapism was similar, was for sport. My, my escapism was playing team sports, um, rugby being my main sport. Um, but I always talk about that, but sometimes I don't openly talk about the things I also tried. You know, I, I, I tried counseling and, and that was okay, but sometimes it, it would touch and go. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work for me, depending on the mood I was in and what I was able to share. Um, but I think a lot of people just think, oh, we have this, we find this one escapism and it's the first time you try something as opposed to it really, really being, you know, we have to try lots of things and it just be for yourself was triathlon and was the thing that stuck for you. Yeah, I think for me, um, exercise was always something that was important to me, but you know, I mean, when you're depressed, it's really hard to get yourself moving, you know? So, you know, having my cousin in my ear going, okay, so we have uh, eight weeks until we, we actually do this, you know, and um, him pushing me and then having that goal on the calendar. Um, you know, I, I really just threw myself into that. And then I found, you know what, I actually really like how I feel. I like how my body looks. I like the energy level that I have. Um, I'm getting out of bed every day. These were things that, you know, um, were all serving me in a great way. So mm -hmm. I'm fortunate that I gravitated to a healthy vice because I know a lot of times when you deal with depression, you go to, you know, what's most comfortable. I'd love to come back to this, this TED talk you did at work and, and it's something that someone else put you forward for. Was it, had you ever opened up about your mental health experiences before that? Or was that TED talk the first time you actually opened up and started sharing? You know, it's funny. I, um, when I mentioned before that I had finally found a youth group when I was younger that accepted me, I found myself on a retreat telling my story as like a, what, 15, 16 year old girl. Hmm. And uh, it was amazing. Like that feedback was amazing. That experience was amazing. And then I don't know what it was. It might've been, it might've been in some work forum that I was telling people about my story. And then a colleague knew that we had a TED stage and she nominates me and I'm like, Oh my goodness, what a, what a huge honor. And, um, you know, but they're never going to pick me. I mean, why would they pick me? There's all these people, people are nominating left and right. They're never going to select me, but then they did. And I was like, wow. So, um, the beautiful part of the company that I was working for was when you got selected, they partnered you with the TED coach. So I had such incredible training, learning how to prepare for and deliver like a 13 minute TED talk with impact. So uh, that was remarkable. It was, it was really a remarkable experience and one that I grew a lot from, but also like it was cathartic to stand on that stage and tell the story and terrifying because here I was telling, burying my soul to, to colleagues, people I would have to look at every day. Uh, who may not be comfortable with the level of authenticity I was delivering, but, uh, but I did it, you know? So yeah, but it was exciting, exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. And what was the reaction post, post the talk when colleagues have probably heard you talk openly about something that they probably never would have expected or never even would have thought that was a reality before? You know, it was mixed. I will tell you, um, some of my, some of my colleagues, uh, like looked the other way because it was almost too uncomfortable for them. And you, you have to, you have to understand we weren't openly talking about mental health in the workplace at that point. And I was sort of going first. I was on one of the very first TED stages we had at my company. So I was probably the first or second person to talk openly about mental health. So, um, some people were incredibly 
you know, positive, wonderful feedback, but others just, just looked the other way because it was uncomfortable. So I think it was a reflection of where the culture was at that point. Um, but then I got to help the culture progress and that was incredibly, you know, like rewarding and fulfilling. So talk, talk to you about what you've done then with, with the culture, because that's the bit that I'm really interested in, because it's something that so many organizations, businesses, companies, workplaces are, are trying to do at the moment. And they're trying to do what, uh, I've got to be honest, I think some organizations do it to tick a box to say, no, yeah, yet we're trying to, we're trying to create a better culture. We do this. But when you actually ask them these questions, you find out what they're doing. It's, it's very little. So, so talk to me about the culture that, that you created in your workplace. Yeah. So, um, so so I had my book in hand and I had the ability to, um, to cause conversation. So that was like my, my, my superpower, right? I have a book and, um, you know, if it's uncomfortable for you, then let's just talk about my story. Um, but it wasn't just me. So several people came after me and told their mental health stories. And when others found the courage to tell their story, it caused more conversation. So people started to come out of the shadows and what it did was an organic kind of grassroots effort started where we developed an employee resource group because so many people were either were affected by mental health themselves or were caring for someone with a mental illness at home. And the last thing they wanted to do was to kind of leave that on the shelf at home and go to work and pretend that they weren't affected by it because they were. So we created an employee resource group um, amazing growth in the first year the, it was dedicated just to people affected by mental illness who wanted to cause change and cause more open conversations um, global company global impact it was it was terrific um, and then you know it came that our president wanted to be a more inclusive organization so he created a remit that we're going to be a truly diverse company, inclusive of people of all abilities. And that's, I think that is like the greatest opportunity for companies that are serious is to, you know, really acknowledge they want to be an inclusive organization and people who have invisible disabilities should be accommodated like somebody with a physical disability. So that remit was vital. Um, access to care, making sure that people, when they had the courage to finally reach out and get support, knew who to call and how to get care. Um, the conversations on the TED stage really were powerful because employees can relate to each other. And if you see an employee who's navigated depression and they're back at work, like that's such a sign of hope and others want to know, how did you do it? And then you're connecting people to other people. So, I mean, there were so many great things that we did. Then there were missteps. There were missteps. There were um, times where, and I think a lot of companies want to do this, is they want to just implement mental health, mental health first aid training, everyone's certified, check the box, like you said, and everything's great. That's really a clinical kind of training. So when you introduce clinical terminologies, you actually are exacerbating the stigma, right? Because then you're having employees, you know, almost diagnosing each other. And that's really not the place. Versus if you create a culture of compassion, listening, support, understanding, sharing, hope, all of those things are much more impactful than a clinical narrative. So uh, amazing experience, amazing experience. And I, and I actually, you know, went around to every senior leader and handed them a copy of my book and said, would you have a conversation at your next staff meeting about mental health? And, uh, and, and I really do feel like I made a difference and, the, you know, and, and they continue to, to cause more change in the company, which is great. 
So that's awesome. I think it's it's so refreshing to hear that people, especially in the workplace themselves, are trying to take active roles in, in, in ending the stigma and creating a better culture for, for not just themselves in the company at that moment, but also for the legacy that you leave. I think that's so important. You know, you're not just doing it for, not just doing it now for yourself, you're doing it for the other people so that they don't have to have the same experience as you. And I think that's so powerful because, you know, in my experience, a lot of people who I've spoken to have had a problem, but they have chosen to look the opposite way because they haven't been brave enough to do something about it, as opposed to actually taking a stand and saying, no, this, this isn't right. We need a better culture. We need to be able to talk openly about mental health and the stigma in the workplace. And I, I think that's so amazing to hear. So from your experiences then, what would your advice, I, I, I'm cautious using the word advice, but what would your message be to somebody who's looking to, to change the culture in the workplace, knowing what you know now? Yeah, I mean, I work with amazing organizations. So the one thing I didn't share with you is I left the pharmaceutical industry and started my company, Trifecta Mental Health, because I wanted to make a bigger impact on cultures. Because I thought if I could, if I could shift a culture, I could impact more people and leave a bigger Im- impact on the world. And so that that's my end game, massive impact on the world. So I work with these um, progressive, innovative companies that are out to be more inclusive. And when you look at the millennial population, they demand a culture that is understanding and open to talking about these things. They're, they're not like, you know, ashamed of mentioning that they struggle with, with things. So, you know, my advice when I, whenever I work with a client is like, what are, what are the great things you're already doing? What's your EAP look like? What, what kind of mental health support do you have? What's your remit at the top levels of the company? Do you really want to be inclusive? Like, what's your leadership saying about mental health? What are your policies that back what they're saying? Are your policies aligned with that? Um, those are two really great things. And then what are your people leaders uh, doing? And how comfortable are they with having those conversations? Because fundamentally, for an employee to feel comfortable talking to their leader, there needs to be trust. And people leaders need to cultivate trust. Because if you look at the bottom line financially, companies are paying a lot of money in disability costs around mental health and they don't even know it. So if you can keep an employee working and engaged, it's to your advantage and to the employee's well-being advantage. But you have to have a trusting culture and an employee-manager relationship that is built on trust and compassion. Uh, You can't have a leader who's looking the other way because it's uncomfortable you have to have a leader willing to work with that employee and keep them engaged and, and, and support them through their journey. And have you had that experience before where, you know, the lower level, they want to normalize and improve the culture, but the top level, then they're not inclusive. And if you have, you know, seeing, seeing you nodding there, but what, what was the experience of that? You know, it was so frustrating for me. I loved the company that I was at. I was very dedicated and I was leading, I was on the leadership team to cause this change and, redu- and remove this, this stigma in the workplace. So I was deeply committed. I saw senior level leaders deeply committed, but then my immediate line manager was not, right? So you have the disparity. You really need to take on educating people leaders. So I remember when I was diagnosed uh, with depression and I was having a hard time. I really was, but I wanted to keep working because I knew it was good for me. I didn't want to stay home and be depressed. So I disclosed that to my leader and I said, listen, I am dealing with depression. I never in a million years thought this. And I thought if I'm truly going to be the change, I have to lead by example and I have to tell people I have to be open. So I took that courageous step and told her. 
And I remember it being met sort of lukewarm response. And I was like, whatever. My performance review came that year. And I had always been a top performer. I was like exceeding expectation year over year for about eight years. And I remember the response that I got in my performance review. And it was, we're sorry you didn't meet expectations. You just didn't bring your bubbly, upbeat self to work every day. And that, and that was so painful. But you know what? That actually lit a fire under me to do something. So as painful as it was, I'm grateful for that. Because I said to myself, how many other employees are putting themselves out there only to be met by being judged by their disposition when they're struggling? So... Mm. Big, big disparity, right? But you had leaders that were totally, you know, promoting inclusion. And then you had that line manager who was just so, so disconnected and so insensitive. And it could be their own unconscious bias and their own relationship to mental health. That's where there's the work to be done, if you ask me. No, I, I completely agree. And, and that must have been so, so hard to take. You know, it's, you know, the fact that you know, something obviously performance is, performance review is something that happens sometimes annually, internally with, with your companies. And it's something that some people may even dread because they know deep down that they're not being themselves. And for the it's, for me, one of the things that I always done when I was younger was I always used to wear a mask. So I never used to like to show people that I was depressed or anxious. I always pretended I was this happy, smiley person. It was this reputation I had to keep. And to see that someone had saw underneath my mask, if something like that happened to me, that would have destroyed me. And the reason why I asked that question is because I had a similar experience back um, back a couple of years ago when I worked with a corporate company and I came in to do some mental health and workplace talks. And it was in a call centre and they only had the call centre staff in the room. They didn't have their senior leaders in the room. And I said, well, hang on a minute. I thought this is a, a mental health conversation for the organisation. They said, oh, no, the, the people upstairs, they, they're not interested in being part of it. It's just the call centre staff we wanted to look after. And, uh, and, and I, refer, I said, look, I'll do this one now, but the next session, an hour's time, I need those people in the room. Otherwise, there's no point because, yes, we can normalize the conversation there, but if they don't have the confidence to go and, like I said, perfectly the trust to go and talk to the line managers or the, the senior leaders, then it's going to be an instant breakdown. This isn't just a lower level approach. This is a whole culture approach. And, you know, we all, we all have those experiences, don't we? And I think it's something that we probably don't talk enough about. Right. But you know, it's an opportunity, right? Like I, I actually have compassion for her because I get that she had no lens or um, emotional intelligence or understanding mm. of mental health. Right. But that's, that's just the problem is people bring to the table their unconscious bias or their ignorance of, to it. And we have a better, we have some work to do to better educate people. We do. Doing so, so where do you think that education has to start then in regards to educating people better when it comes to mental health? People leaders are the ones that employees see and interact with every day, they are the face of the company. You really need to be focusing on the people who are leading your staff. You know, absolutely must have a remit and senior, senior level engagement, but your people leaders are the face of the company. And that's where, you know, the loyalty is going to be, right? So you think about during COVID, for example, I'm working with remarkable companies who want to support their people emotionally and mentally during this time. Think of the level of loyalty that's being bred right now, right? I deliver my resilience webinar to several companies because their, their leaders care about their people's well-being proactively. I'm just like thinking about, oh my goodness, if my company cared so much about my well-being and keeping me healthy mentally, I just, I just 
built so much loyalty with that company. I'm, I'm never going to leave. So you have to think about the invaluable, um, you know, value of caring for your people and their well-being. I mean, it's amazing. So I think we've, we've got to talk about the elephant in the room being COVID right now. Because um, it's something that's, although we may try our best to try and escape it and try and not to let it get, get the better of us, it is still, it is still, sorry, it is still very much a, a thing. So talking about, you, you said you've been delivering uh, resilience webinars for companies and how to take care of those people. And, and what are your key messages in those webinars to, to help people look after and maintain their mental health and well-being during these pandemic times? You know, it's really the entry conversation to mental health, right? So I'm not a clinician, not a therapist, and these are not therapy sessions. What they are is getting people comfortable having a conversation and just maybe even just what is it like to be uh, self-aware? How am I doing today in this moment? And what are the resources available if I don't feel like I'm doing well, you know, tomorrow or the next day? Or my loved one, I'm worried about them. How, how do I better support them? So what I focus on in my webinars are practical things that people can be doing on a day-to-day -day basis to proactively maintain their well-being. Everything from having a structure to meditating to having um, you know, physical spaces in your home dedicated to relaxation, dedicated to exercising, um, to uh, gratitude. I talk about all these things that really collectively you have the ability to take on and try to help yourself feel better. Um, and if they, if they work and they help you, amazing. If you need more, I want you to be comfortable reaching out and getting clinical support because it's okay to not be okay. And I think we need to start talking more about it being okay when you don't feel okay. You're human beings and the brain is just another organ. And especially during this time, one of the things that, that I honestly struggled with the first couple of weeks of, of lockdown and going through this pandemic was, you know, I'm quite a happy and bubbly person. And whenever I'm not happy and bubbly, like you, like you said in your, in your um, end of your report, performance report, I take that as a negative thing. And I think, oh God, what's, what's wrong with me then? I start questioning myself and... And I soon had to realize during these, during these weeks, it's a case of that I'm not always going to be at the top of my game. I'm not always going to wake up in the morning and feel as if, yeah, I'm motivated, I'm inspired, I'm, I'm ready to take massive action. Because some days it's, it's just not right. And it's okay sometimes where I've been trying to battle through a day knowing that I've had work to, I've had to get through it. And sometimes I've just said, you know what, today's just not going to be a great day. Let's close my laptop down. Let's take some time for myself, do the things that makes me happy, and we'll try again tomorrow. And, and yeah. that's sometimes one of my, probably one of my biggest learnings and takeaways that I, I will take away from this pandemic. Yeah. Give yourself permission to just do what you have to do for, to feel better. I mean, I, listen, I don't know about you. I've been doing quarantine by myself as a single woman. You know, it's not mm -hmm. been easy. I have my animals, thank goodness. And thank God it's summertime and springtime here in New Jersey so I can be outside getting fresh air um, and running, like I said. But it's still like, yeah, I have those days. Absolutely. It's very isolating to not have someone with you, you know, uh, and there's only so many Zoom calls you can do before you're like, okay, ready with the Zoom yeah. calls, you know, so I get it. I get it. But I think acknowledging and giving ourselves grace and compassion and really just being with where we are is so important. Really, really is. Hmm. You talked there about, I want to come back to this word resilience, because I think resilience is something that we often talk about but we don't actually talk about what resilience actually means to different people so so what does resilience mean to you i think it means um what are the proactive things that you can do to be able to bounce back quicker so if i 
if I introduce a structure in my life that has me present to things I'm grateful for, that has me making sure I'm eating a decent diet and not, you know, gravitating to the comfort foods. If I do things on a daily basis that help my well-being, I'm going to be more resilient when, when a situation shows up and it wants to take me down. Um, I think it's those proactive things you can do to gain mental toughness. Mm. You talk about mental toughness then. Is that, is that something that we all have inside of us or is that something that we have to learn to find? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think some of us have, um, are, you know, born into families that teach you that young. And I think others, um, have circumstances like my own that kind of, that kind of, um, not by choice, provide mental toughness. Um, and I also think that it can be, it can be learned through circumstances. So I think, I think probably both. I think it's, it's the same with, with me. I always say that one of my favorite quotes is that your current circumstances in life doesn't have to equal your conclusion. And I think I found a lot of, a lot of strength from, from, you know, in my darkest moments, I've discovered my inner strengths inside of me and I've had to go to those dark places to find out, you know, who I am and what I'm meant to do. Cause I really believe all of us are part on this planet to do something amazing and do something yeah. great in our lives. We just yeah. have to find it. And it's not always yeah. going to be the, the places where you think it's first going to be or the, the place that where it first feels right. It's going to take a process. Yes. I totally agree with that. And it's paying attention throughout the journey, paying attention for, you know, during those uncomfortable moments, you know, gosh, I, if I could, if, so many uncomfortable moments over the past few years, you have no idea, but with every uncomfortable situation, I'm expanding and I'm growing because we have to pay attention. Therein lies the, our character that, that emerges, right? And when we're pushed in those different directions, it's that self-awareness that can have us get stronger and be better. Yeah, definitely. And it's something for me, it's whenever I'm in a, whenever I'm in a place of, of, of fear or I'm in a place of uncomfortable or I'm, or I'm anxious about doing something I always ask myself the one question that is you know what am I learning from this and if I can take something that if I can take one thing meaningful from that experience then I'm going to be better off for it in, in the future and it's all about learning isn't it you know it I, I really do believe life happens um, not to us but for us and if we can take something from it it's it's like this pandemic you know I'll certainly take the learnings from here that, that I never would have had before if this hadn't have happened and I really do believe that in everything that happens to us, we can take learning and we can take experiences from that, that will make us stronger long-term. I totally agree. And I feel like a lot of us might be relating to this pandemic as just surviving it, getting through it. But I, I also like to consider that it, it's like a garden, right? Like if you plant something in a garden and you go out and you look at the garden every day, you won't see growth. But if you take a step back and you reflect in a, in a month's time how much it's grown, it's like, wow. So I think it's a great opportunity for us to take inventory of like, how have I grown over the past few months during this pandemic? Because believe it or not, you have. In some way, you have grown. There is something that it has taught you. And I, think, I don't think we stop and we reflect and, and acknowledge that growth because it's pretty, it's pretty inspiring, you know? No, I completely agree with them. I find it's amazing because it's something that I've done so much during this time. You know, I've, I've looked and cause obviously it's given me time to stop and actually reflect and properly slow down and appreciate the journey that I've been on. And, and I realized how much I've achieved in two years is, and I was, to be honest with you at the start of this year, I was 
you know, being quite harsh on myself, realizing that, well, I've had such an amazing two years. These last couple of months haven't been as good as I thought they would have been or as caught as they were preparing to become. But actually, when I stopped and reflect and look back, I realized, well, actually, this is where I started two years ago and this is where I am now. It's, I've come on a, pr- a pretty mad journey. And you start to realize that more. And then all of a sudden you become, like you said, you become more grateful for what you've done and what you have compared to what you don't have or perhaps that, that fear or, or the expectations of what you thought was, you was going to have. Yeah, I think we need to be gentler on ourselves. Um, I have a mentor who used to tell me when I would speak with him, he would say, Michelle, there's no time for self-assault. So stop beating yourself up. Like we need to be more gentler and more compassionate with the progress we have made and stop beating ourselves up. Be more gentle and recognize those victories and celebrate them. Super important. You talked about your, you know, your mentors, but why is it important for you to have mentors but also friends and family who you can check in on you during these times oh my gosh being a being alone uh gosh it's so important i mean connecting it actually is proven that connecting with a friendly face someone that brings you you know makes you smile it can actually help reduce your levels of stress so for that reason i've been doing zoom calls with my best girlfriends with my friends um my other friends and family um, my leadership community, uh, just seeing their faces really does boost my, my mood. So um, even social distance park walks with friends that I know, just to connect with them, even if you're wearing a mask, at least you're seeing them. Um, it's so important. We're human beings. We're, you know, we're designed to be connected to. We, we want to co- connection. So to take that from us is, is really hard. So we need to do what we have to, to stay connected and stay talking and interacting and, you know, smiling. I know Zoom is a pain in the butt, but at least I can see your <laughs> smile, you know, in a mask, you can't, you're like, you gotta look at the eyes and like, I think they're smiling or they're squinting yeah. or something though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, flipping that on its head then, you know, and then from ourselves, from our perspective, yourself and the sickle Michelle, you know, for you to look after your friends and your family and your loved ones in your life right now, you know, how do we start this conversation when it comes to mental health and how do we best check in on those people um, despite how hard it may be for us to start a conversation? You know, what are your go-to starting techniques and, and how do you make that conversation take place? Let's not make it a big deal. It's as simple as saying, how are you doing? You know, and it's really like, I think people take on too much that they have to fix and play the role of a clinician. And they really don't. It's invaluable just to ask someone, how are you doing? Genuinely, how are you feeling? Um, Without being invasive and just being quiet and listening and just being that opening and that space for them to share if there's something that they're dealing with. Um, maybe even going first and saying, you know, yesterday was a really freaking bad day for me. Um, it was for me quite literally, uh, no, Monday. Monday was a horrible day for me. I literally did what you did. I shut my computer and sat on the couch and watched bad TV because that's what I needed to do, you know? So honestly, it's giving people permission by going first and, and maybe telling one on yourself and creating that access in that space and not calling it mental illness or, um, you know, not calling it that it's just checking in and caring and being genuine yeah it's, it's a conversation it's between one-on-one people and it's a conversation you know that people can have in, in any space at any moment you know there's no right there's no wrong place and for me one of the things that i've learned is that you know with, with some of my friends is that i can check in on them and ask how they're feeling and sometimes they'll say yeah yeah i'm good i'm good i'm so oh, brilliant amazing and then you know the next day you'll ask them again and they can say um yeah i'm okay 
but then sometimes when when you ask not once and you ask twice yes they may give you the same answer but at least they then know that you care and you're asking it for the right reasons as opposed to just being your general walking by the staff hi how are you and not waiting for an answer and just continue walking on and um and sometimes during those moments then they're, when they're not feeling great, although they may tell you in the, in the moment of that answer that they're doing fine, they know then if, if they're not feeling great, then perhaps they can go to you. And they can say, oh, and for example, when I've asked twice, um, I've had maybe a friend text me and saying, yeah, you know what, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing great. And, they, yeah. and like, that's the power of, of asking and really meaning it as opposed to asking it and just being a throwaway question. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you just created a an access for them to feel comfortable reaching out to you. And that is such a powerful gift. So really, even if you're asking them and you feel like it's going in vain, just know it's landing over there as a safe place that they always know they can tap into. So I love that. I love that. Yeah, mm. really great. And then um, one thing that I want to I talk about, because we've, we've talked a lot about kind of the workplace, which I think has been fascinating. Um, but also let's come back to maybe some, some young people. I understand, you know, your work is involving a lot with some of the, the schools and local communities that you're, you're in and work with. Now, why is it important that we have these conversations with young people at their young age about mental health? Yeah. Wow. Because we have an opportunity to um, foster a generation that is comfortable with brain health. That, that there is no stigma to remove. If you can humanize and normalize this conversation about mental well-being at a young age, then it's not a thing for them when they become an adult. They're just growing up naturally talking about it like they talk about, um, you know, sunburn or a bug bite. Like they're just talking about it and it's normal and they're not afraid or embarrassed by it. Um, and if you can teach a child to understand that it's okay to raise your hand if you or your friend aren't doing okay and get help, you have the opportunity of preventing potentially a teen suicide, right? Because then they're comfortable talking about it. They're comfortable going, hey, my friend over there, he's not well. He needs support. And I'm going to tell someone about it because I, I really value his life. So it's just having them comfortable to speak up for themselves and for their, and for their friends, you know? I think one because a lot of my work is is with schools and young people in, across the UK at the minute because it's you know I realize that my age I'm relatable to them a lot more than someone else coming and just talking about things and and for me you know I don't go in and, and share this big story I make it the smallest I can to make it relatable to them like talking with about exam stress and how I cope with that and all those things because you know those are the kind of the first opportunities the first challenges that many young people will face and it certainly will not be the last as they get older um, but they just don't see it like that. So if we can teach them how to be resilient and how to deal with the pressure and the stress of exams and, and peer pressure with young people, then it ho hopefully we're going to build stronger adults in the long term because they're going to have these skills. And it's yeah. something that I think we probably neglect sometimes in school. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, out of my own healing process, I created my children's program. Um, I didn't even realize I was doing it as a vehicle for me to heal. I just wanted kids to realize their greatness because that was something I was missing. So I created a children's program called Perfect Just The Way You Are, and it evolved into a mental health wellness fair. Because to your point, if we can get in there and get them some resilience tips and tools, understand how to meditate, understand 
um, what their emotions that they're feeling are and, you know, openly talking about it, then, then you empower them, especially if they're at the middle school level, you're empowering them to be able to navigate high school and, and peer pressure and, you know, the social media comparison and the testing and, you know, all the pressures that go along with high school. I wish I had those skills in high school. So I love that, you know, we want to get in there and teach them these, these tools because they're so important, but teachers have such a strong responsibility on the academic side. They don't have the capacity to make sure that this other stuff that is truly important gets put into the kids as well. Hmm. So if, if I was a CT, I'll give you an opportunity to say that, um, if you had a if you had a magic wand right now to, to you know to, to make one thing possible in schools or within young people and you had one wish that you, you could make come true tomorrow, what, what would that one thing be in regards to to help the conversation to help mental health? I think every school and every child should know how and use meditation, hands down. To be able to silence the voices in their head and calm themselves when they're overwhelmed and with anxiety. We have, I mean, imagine having young people that have the capacity to clear their heads whenever they need to and have that tool of meditation. I wish every school had meditation. Mm. And is yeah. that something that, you, is that a tool that you use personally? I do. For me, yeah. I mean, I, um, I do transcendental meditation myself and it's amazing to just get rid of the junk out of my head. Like it's sort of like the washcloth where you just are squeezing all that stuff out of your head and you're giving yourself that clarity and with clarity comes focus um, and the ability to control the level of positive thoughts you have in your mind. If your mind is overwhelmed with thought, it's very easy for the negative to get in there. So if you want control over your brain, I always say meditate, clear your head. You'll have the ability to have more positive, healthy thoughts. So yeah. No, it's, it's something that, that I use. Um, and I kind of use mindfulness as opposed to kind of formal meditation, just because it's something that uh, allows me to, to switch off for a short amount of time and just get that clarity and just that, that ease of the anxiety that I need. Um, yeah. and, I, and I like I like using guided mindfulness because although I love doing it myself, it's just something refreshing about hearing a, a calm voice and you're know, able to relax. Especially, like I said, if, you, if you're on your own, it's a case of that. It's just having that time to yourself and that you can really pause and reflect and switch off on. Um, and I and I use apps for that. I started off kind of using like, and I think when it comes to you know meditation and mindfulness, is that people think that these things are expensive and that they're a luxury to have. You know, I, I started off by doing them by following like um, YouTube videos. Or, yeah. or like or like or like podcasts on Spotify and iTunes and all these things are free online. But people yet again they they make excuses for themselves not to do it. Yeah. And even in my resilience webinar, I actually have them do a two minute meditation with Deepak Chopra that is on YouTube, by the way. It's free. And in that two minutes, they're getting a sense of what it feels like. So you don't need to do it for 15, 20 minutes. You can do it for two minutes. Who doesn't have two minutes? You know? Yeah. That's it. And it's like, I, I personally do mine a lot when it comes to bed because I, I find it hard to switch off the nights and to get to sleep because my mind is just completely getting active. And, you know, I, I tried reading books before bed, but some the books I often read just get me more motivated to try new things and, and get me thinking. And I always find that just literally, right, when I call it a night, it's 10 minutes of, of just that mindfulness that just allows me to breathe and switch off. And 
Um, and it's allowed me just to be so much more happy myself. And I, and also then I use it in moments where I get stressed out. Like, um, for example, I was back a couple of months ago, I was on a train to, to London to speak at an event and the train got canceled. And I found myself getting really, really stressed and wound up. And the best way to do it was right. Okay. Finally got on the train eventually first 10 minutes, right. Let's just pause for 10 minutes. Let's just do some mindfulness and let's just calm myself down. And I think, like yeah. I said, all of us have two minutes no day to do it. It's just, it's just actually wanting to do it, isn't it? It's so true. Yeah. Or, or you haven't experienced the tranquility that it provides. Mm. So that's why I like to walk people through the two minutes because you don't know what you don't know, right? You don't know where it's your blind spot. So if you don't know what that experience can offer you, then it's easy to say it's not for me. So, yeah. No, I completely agree. And um, yeah, I just want to, before I bring this another incredible episode to a close, I want to just personally personally acknowledge you, Michelle. I think you know what you've been doing and and what you've been through has been absolutely incredible. But to be in a position where you are now, to be able to to really give back and help so many other people, both young people, community, first responders, and, and also in the workplaces, is admirable. Um, and I want to thank you for for giving your time out today um, to to speak to me and share my sto- share your story with me. Um, and I'm sure our listeners are going to take so much from this episode about you know mental health in the workplace, but I think it all comes down to taking responsibility and taking action. I think there are two types of people in the world. There's some people who will see things and will take it in and will continue to turn a blind eye and will walk on with it. And there are people who have an experience and say, no, this isn't right. I want to do something about it. And uh, I definitely think you're one of those people. So on behalf of myself and all the listeners, I want to say a, a massive thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so grateful that you found me here in the United States and that you had me on your show. Thank you so much. No, absolute pleasure. Um, but before we bring this episode to a close, um, I want to just two questions. First of all, if people want to find out more about your work, your resilient webinars and, and all the stuff you've been up to, then where can people find you online? Sure. My website is michelledickinson.com. You can reach out to me there. I'm happy to, to hear from you. Um, my Instagram, you can reach out to me. Um, I will share that with you. It's, I think it's michelledickinson31 or 71. Um, but I'll make sure because I don't, I don't, I'm not, yeah. Anyway, you can reach out to me there. Um, my book is Breaking Into My Life. It's available, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Uh, globally, it's available. Um, I love when people are interested in my story and would be you know, happy to talk to anyone who's, who's struggling as well, caring for someone or, or dealing with it. Um, yeah, learn about my webinar on my website. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to share that with people to, to help build resilience. Yeah. Awesome. I'll make sure that all the links Michelle kindly talked about there is in it's down below in the show notes. So if you want to get Michelle's book, learn about her resilience webinars, or follow her on social media or on her website, then um, the links are accessible down below. Um, but before we finish, I always finish up every episode with something I call my final five, which are five rapid fire questions that just hopefully <laughs> pr- brings this episode to a close. So you can you can take your time with them. We've got we've got as much time as you want with them. Um, but first of all, question number one, Michelle, is what are you grateful for? Uh, my ambition. Awesome. And question number two, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Mm, be fearless and go for your dreams love that be fearless and go for your dreams and number three if you could go back and share one message that you know now with your younger self growing up as a child what would that one message be self-acceptance is more important than external acceptance love that i think that's one a lot of young people could should should really hear right now 
Yeah, man, love yourself. Don't don't put that in the hands of anyone else but yourself. Love that. And number four, what is one thing that every single one of us can do right now to to end the stigma and discrimination when it comes to, to mental health? Go first. Talk about it openly. Share yourself. Go first. And question number five, one of my five my, my favorite questions to ask is is for you, Michelle, is is what is your definition? What does believing in yourself mean to you? feeling the fear and still going for it. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of the Believe in Yourself podcast and that you're going to share this episode with everyone that needs to hear these messages. Don't forget to leave a like and a comment your biggest takeaway and lesson that you have learned. If you have enjoyed, then please do leave a review and subscribe. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Believe in Yourself podcast.